0: This evening we're going to consider Judah and Tamar, that's the title of my sermon, Judah and Tamar, and we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 38, the whole chapter. Last week I told you that the last quarter of the book of Genesis is pretty much a biography about Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob. Also, it was pointed out that Joseph can be viewed as a type of Christ. For example, the Lord Jesus Christ is without sin. As for Joseph, like the rest of us, he most certainly was not without sin. Even so, there's nothing recorded in the scriptures about him that is sinful and sordid. The Lord Jesus Christ saves people from their sin. As for Joseph, many people were delivered or saved when he was in charge of the food supplies in Egypt during seven years of famine. We've still got to come to that. That comes later in Genesis. We started reading about Joseph in chapter 37 and it was seen that when he was just 17 years of age, he was sold into slavery by all his older brothers who hated him, and they envied him. If you look back at the very last verse of chapter 37, if you have a look at it now, the last verse there, you'll see that it is written, And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. Joseph's brothers had sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Midianites, and as we see, they in turn sold him into slavery in Egypt. You'd then have to skip an entire chapter to find out what happens next, and uh, we'll do that now, skip the whole of chapter 38, and look at verse 1 in chapter 39. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt and Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh captain of the guard an Egyptian brought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites that's the Midianites which had brought him down thither can you see how verse one of chapter thirty nine it follows on from the last verse of um, the last verse of chapter thirty seven as such The chapter in between those two verses, chapter 38, which is about Joseph's big brother Judah, is a departure from the biography which is about Joseph, but it is nonetheless a very important chapter. It's a chapter that I could have very easily skipped. But it's there in the scriptures, and it's there because... Well, amongst the reasons why it's there, I don't claim to have all the reasons, but although Joseph was a type of Christ, the incarnate Son of God is nevertheless a descendant, not of Joseph, but of Judah, according to his humanity. If you look at the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3, you'll see Judah's name in them and not Joseph's. Also, The depravity of Judah that is presented to us in all its sordid details in chapter 38 is a very fitting reminder that Christ Jesus came into the world to save people from their sins, even the most despicable sins. There couldn't be a greater contrast between Joseph, who was a type of Christ, and his brother Judah, who was the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph was involuntarily separated from his family when his brothers sold him into slavery. Also, as we shall see as we progress uh, through the book of Genesis, Joseph resisted sin. He actively resisted sin. Whereas Judah, as we shall see this evening, voluntarily separated himself from his family and he immersed himself in sin. As well as considering Judah in chapter 38, we shall briefly consider another man, Pharis, And his name can also be found in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pharis was one of Judah's sons. A third person whom we shall be considering this evening is Tamar, who was the mother of Pharis. All three of them, Judah, Pharis and Tamar, can be found in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one and verse three, where it is written and Judas begat Pharis and Zara of Tamar. Zara, whom we shan't be spending any time considering, was the twin brother of pharisee uh, If you paid attention when I was reading it, he was the one that put his hand out first, the midwife tied a thread to his hand, then he went back inside, and his brother Farris uh, uh, was born first. Well, just look again at verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned in to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Her father's name was Shua, that wasn't her name. And he took her and went in unto her. After Judah and his brothers sold Joseph into slavery and then they comforted their grieving father Jacob as they pretended that Joseph had been devoured by a wild animal, Judah left the family home in Hebron and he married a Canaanite woman, a pagan woman. Judah married her even though he he would... He would not have been entirely ignorant of the promise of God that was given to his father Jacob. When the Lord said to Jacob, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee. And kings shall come out of thy loins and the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac to thee I will give it and to thy seed after thee will I give the land. The land or the land of promise was Canaan, which Jacob's descendants, the children of Israel would inherit about 200 years later. With that in mind, Judah had no business entering into a marriage relationship with a Canaanite woman. As John Calvin points out, For neither he nor his other brethren were ignorant that they sojourned in the land of Canaan, under the stipulation that afterwards their enemies were to be cut off and destroyed, in order that they might possess the promised dominion over it. He would have known something. His father must have communicated something to him about the promises that were given. The promises of blessing. The promise that was first given to Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, that they would be a great nation. Judah's Canaanite wife gave him three sons. The eldest was Ur, next came Onan, and last of all there was Shelah. Judah found a wife for his eldest son. Her name was Tamar. And she was most likely a Canaanite as well. If her name sounds familiar, it ought to. I've already pointed out that Tamar appears in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the mother of Judah's son, Pharis. More about that later. However, here in verse 6. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law by her marriage to her eldest son, Ur. I hope you're still with me. Tamar never produced a son for Ur, and that is because the Lord slew him for some undisclosed act of wickedness that he did. Consequently, Judah instructed his second son, Onan, to marry Tamar and raise up a child unto his dead brother. That principle became enshrined in the law that the Lord gave to the children of Israel some 200 years later. And that can be seen to be the case in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5, where it is written, If brethren dwell together, and one of them die, and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger." her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. It's clear. It became law for the children of Israel. If a man dies, a married man dies, his brother takes the woman to be his wife to raise up a son for his dead brother. As far as raising up children unto his dead brother was concerned, Onan was having none of it and he took measures to ensure that he did not cause Tamar to conceive. That too was seen as evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he too was duly slain by the Lord. When one considers what the evil was, as well as it involving Onan's refusal to raise up a child for his departed brother Ur, it has been suggested that by his... Uh, by his action, now listen carefully to this. By his action, he hindered or he delayed the coming of the Messiah. He delayed the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who descended from Judah's line. Obviously, Onan, who was, uh, should have produced a son for his departed brother, was of the lineage. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, or he rather he was a son of Judah. So what he did there. It hindered or delayed the coming of Christ. That has been suggested. But I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. In previous chapters it's already been seen. That God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. And then God chose Jacob and not Esau. To be the recipients of the promise. That in them. And their seed, their seed being the Lord Jesus Christ, all families of the earth would be blessed. That must surely mean that the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ would end up precisely in accordance with God's predetermined counsel and the Lord's good pleasure. In other words, all the names that appear in the genealogy of Jesus are there. Because God chose those people to be the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Onan was never God's choice to be in the lineage of Jesus and to advance his coming. By the way, that doesn't excuse him for what he did. It, he he was expected to um, father a son for his departed brother. So... I'm not excusing that, I don't believe the Bible excuses that at all. But at the end of the day, the names that appear in the genealogy of Jesus, they did not exclude Onan because of what he did. His name was not, is not in the genealogy of Jesus because God never meant it to be in there. When finally the Lord Jesus Christ was born, that happened precisely in God's time as well no delay at all the Lord Jesus Christ he came in the fullness of time Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 tells us that not a minute too soon or a minute too late in God's perfect time as Paul said in Galatians 4 verse 4 but when the fullness of time was come God sent forth his son made of a woman Coming back to our passage in Genesis chapter 38, Judah still had one son, Sheila, but he had no desire, or Judah had no desire for Tamar to be Sheila's wife. Look at verse 11. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till Sheila, my son, be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did, and Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. It would seem that Judah somehow considered that it was Tamar's fault that Ur and Onan had died. It was all her fault. And he didn't want the same fate to be, to befall his remaining son, Sheila. Consequently, he dismissed Tamar with a pretense of kindness and a promise of marriage to Sheila at a later date, which he never intended to keep. He just wanted to get rid of Tamar. Twice widowed and childless Tamar, Julie went away to live in her father's house, but that most certainly was not the last that her father-in-law Judah would see of her. Not by a long chalk. Let's look at verses 12 to 14 again. And in the process of time, the daughter of Judah's wife, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. <clears throat> and she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil, Unwrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath, for she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. So a certain number of years—we don't know how long—certain t- number of years had passed by since Tamar returned to her father's house at the inst- by, at the instruction of her father-in-law Judah, and now Shelah. Judah's last remaining son. He he was now of an age to marry her. And she realised that it wasn't going to happen. Judah had not been sincere with her. It would have been better had Judah released her instead of telling her to remain at her father's house until Sheila was grown. As it was, Judah was still her father-in-law because he didn't dismiss her He was still her father-in-law, which meant that she was not free to marry anyone else. She'd been conned, basically. When news reached Tamar that her father-in-law's wife had died and that he had gone to Timnath, she positioned herself in full view of everyone, but veiled on the route to Timnath. So her identity was concealed. Judah came along and not realising that it was her, he went with her. For services rendered, he left with her his signet ring, his bracelets and his staff as a pledge until such time he, he, he had sent to her a kid of the goats as payment for services rendered. Judah's friend, who was later sent with the payment and also to recover the pledge, Was unable to find Tamar and he found out from the townsfolk that there were no prostitutes there. Three months later, word reached Judah that Tamar had played the harlot. He didn't realise that she played the harlot with him. As I say, her identity had been concealed. And she was pregnant. Whereupon he, with all the authority of being her father-in-law, because he hadn't dismissed her, with all that authority, he ordered that she be brought forth and burned. And then we come to verses 25 and 26. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man whose these are, am I with child. And she said, discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet and bracelets and staff? And Judah acknowledged them and said, she have been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah, my son, and he knew her again no more. So when her, when, her, when Tamar's father-in-law, Judah, found out what had gone on, instead of Tamar pleading for her life pleading for clemency she simply produced the signet ring the bracelets and the staff whereupon Judah said she hath been more righteous than I from what Judah said are we to imagine that hers was the lesser sin she has been more righteous than I was that what he was saying her sin is less than mine not at all but as John Gill said I think he's John Gill's got it right here. Judah means not with respect to the sin of uncleanness committed by them, in which she was the greatest criminal. She sat not only in the way to tempt him to it, but she knew who he was and willfully committed incest with him, whereas he thought and knew of nothing else but simple fornication. But with respect to the affairs in connection between them, she had on her part according to his direction, kept herself a widow in expectation of being given to his son, Sheila for a wife, but he had not made good his part. He had not fulfilled his promise. He had neglected to give her to his son, which he ought to have done according to the usage of those times. And as he had suggested to her, he would." And his neglect of this had been the cause and occasion of this criminal conversation between them, or criminal conduct between them. And this is the reason he himself gives of her being more righteous than he. On a more, on a much more positive note for Judah, by confessing that Tamar had been more righteous than he, and by knowing her again no more, he appears to have shown repentance towards God for the terrible things that he had done. So that's a good thing, that he showed repentance there. But, needless to say that Tamar was not burnt, and she duly gave birth to two sons. Phares, who, as has already been said, is in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Zara. The birth of those two boys was far from straightforward either. We'll have another quick look at what happened there. Verse 28. And it came to pass, when she travailed, that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. And it came to pass, as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out, and she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Pharaz. He's the one who is in the genealogy of Jesus. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand. And his name was called Zara. Let's have some applications for us. This evening we've been considering... A whole chapter of the Bible, if you like, a whole chapter in history about matters that you might want to exercise a certain amount of discretion over if ever you read and consider it at your family devotions. It's a chapter that presents human depravity warts and all. And in the thick of it are two people whose names are in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Judah, the fornicator, who in the previous chapter had already risen to infamy when he sold his brother Joseph into slavery. And also there's Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who played the harlot with him. There is, of course, um, Perez, but... The only thing that Pharaohs did in this chapter was be born. As to why God the Holy Spirit has included this chapter in the Holy Bible, again, I don't claim to have all the answers here, but for one thing, the speed at which Judah married a Canaanite woman when he departed from his family home in Hebron helps us to see and appreciate the need for the eventual exodus Of Judah and all his family, all his sons, most certainly including Judah, out of the land of Canaan and into Egypt. Where Joseph had, in the providence of God, been sold into slavery and risen to high office. In fact, he'd risen to become second under Pharaoh. All in the providence of God. And perhaps we can see why when we look at the antics of Judah. In chapter 38. We'll see all the, we'll see about that later in later chapters, the whole family um, departing from the promised land of Canaan and going into Egypt to sojourn in Egypt. And when they arrived in Egypt, they were hated by the Egyptians because they were considered to be lowly shepherds. And they were given the land of Goshen within Egypt, which means they lived separately from the Egyptians, the pagan Egyptians. In the providence of God, that arrangement no doubt served to prevent the patriarchs of Israel from being absorbed into pagan nations of Canaan. We see that that could very easily have happened when we consider what happened this evening. With Judah, and no sooner had he left his family home, he married a Canaanite woman. And so, Joseph, being sold into slavery in Egypt, rising up to high office, and then eventually, for reasons that we'll see at a later date, if the Lord tarries, the whole of uh, the family Jacob and all the sons they pack their bags and move off to Egypt and they're, they they have their own little bit of Egypt called Goshen that arrangement no doubt served to prevent the patriarchs of Israel from being absorbed and it kept them ethnically pure and it served to preserve them from when they, for when they would eventually return to Canaan and take possession of it Many years later, after the children of Israel had been in, 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 under affliction as slaves in Egypt, and the Lord delivered them from Egypt, and uh, after 40 years of wilderness wanderings, they returned to the land of promise. But by then, they'd multiplied greatly, and they'd been preserved as God's people, God's chosen people in the Old Testament times. Last of all, what can be seen in Genesis chapter 38 is that Judah did nothing whatsoever to merit being head of a tribe from which the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, would eventually be born. If anything, it's been seen that the um, preeminence of Judah in the patriarchal family was entirely due to the grace of God. We can't say that Judah was any better than any of his brothers. They're all as bad as each other. Far from being someone who strove for greater levels of holiness and godliness in his life, Judah appeared to be someone who was driven by lust. As as for us, when it comes to salvation from sin, by grace are ye saved, Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is one of those chapters of the Bible that highlights the unmerited favour of God towards hell-deserving sinners. And God's will being done, not because of anything good proceeding from us, but in spite of the outworking of depraved hearts. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We see some of that in chapter thirty-eight, and I, my, my, I trust that none of us uh, are sad. Oh dear, that that. Well, it is bad, but don't put yourself on some uh, high horse with a halo round your head when you're reading a chapter like this. There go I, but for the grace of God. And so, Christ Jesus came not into the world to reward people for their piety and for their upright lives. He came into the world to save deep-dyed sinners. And despite various attempts by wicked men, doing the lusts of their father, the devil, seeking to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ, right from the time he was an infant, He was nevertheless nailed to a cross in God's perfect time. And he was lifted up to die sacrificially on that cross, bearing in his body all the vile sins of all that he came to save. And their iniquity was laid upon him. Mm. I want to emphasise this because more and more I'm convinced that too many Christians... yeah they understand sin and I'm not saying they're not Christians but their understanding of sin doesn't seem to be enough uh, an old man said it perfectly when I was in London City Mission he spoke about the sinfulness of sin and Christians, the more we understand how sinful sin is the more we will appreciate what we have been saved from and the more we will appreciate the grace of God, that even though our sins are so bad, the depravity of our heart is so bad, yet the grace of God is even great, is far greater, infinitely greater than our depravity. And uh, if this chapter serves to magnify the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was nailed to a cross, lifted up to die, bearing the most terrible sins and uh, the thoughts of our hearts, even if you live a comparatively clean life, that doesn't alter a thing. And I, I can hide behind the scriptures, which I do, and I can say, I can only repeat what the Bible says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jesus talked about the heart in Matthew chapter 15. From the heart proceeds murders, adultery, idolatry, theft, fornication, you name it, it's all there. We see that in the, in the world we live in. How much it seems to be magnified at the moment where anything goes in society everything's been turned upside down and and, and good is now evil in the eyes of this world and the most despicable things things that are called an abomination in the Bible are celebrated and enshrined in law it speaks volumes about the depravity of men's hearts And still, the Lord Jesus Christ is saving people from their sins. All who come to him in repenting for their sins, showing repentance towards God and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And so, a Christian is someone who, having read chapter 38 of Genesis, praises the God of his salvation for the grace that has saved him, the grace that keeps him and the grace that will take him home to be with Jesus, who is the God of his salvation. And to God be the glory. Amen.